So ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the prevailing narrative. We have today what will be a, a very important conversation uh, on a topic that I've been harping on quite a bit, which is crime in America's big cities, in particular Los Angeles, where I live. Um, today we have with us uh, John McKinney. He's been a deputy district attorney in the city of Los Angeles for going on 23 years now. Um, and he's been impressively unapologetic in speaking out publicly on some of what's been going wrong with criminal justice and law enforcement in Los Angeles recently. Um, and that's how he and I connected and we're going to get into the depths and the details of what's going on in the city of Los Angeles and criminal justice more broadly um, in America's big cities in just a moment. Also with us is a good friend um, and colleague of mine, Sean Matian, um, who has been a criminal attorney, currently the president uh, president of the Matian Law Firm with over 500 employees and attorneys nationwide. Um, gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. And so to give people a little framing on on where my particular interest in this topic comes from, um, I remember, you know, growing up in L.A. in the 80s and the other city that I spent a lot of time in as a child was New York. And these were dangerous places. It was an article of faith that was just accepted that being mugged, robbed, murdered was always something it was always a possibility when you were in these cities. But that was a, a pretty consistent condition in America's big cities from the late sixties through the the early to mid nineties. Then magically, all of a sudden, kind of towards the middle of the nineties, the the crime rates in these cities start to plummet. They keep they start going down, they keep going down. And by the 2000s, by the time we're in the 21st century, we pretty much have stable, safe cities in America, New York, L.A., Chicago. um, These things do not resemble the cities that they were in the 80s and into the early 90s. Now, suspiciously, over the past five to six years, since some movements have sprung up around reimagining law enforcement, criminal justice um, and some other, you know, of what we'll get into the validity or invalidity of them um, in depth in this conversation. But some movements um, that are more critical of how we have addressed these problems have sprung up in the towards the end of the 2010s and into the 2020s. And kind of suspiciously, that has coincided with an increase in crime, in particular in America's big cities. Um, L.A. is experiencing its worst year, worst phase in, in criminal justice and crime in a couple decades. New York having some issues as well. And we're trying to see where did it go wrong? What lessons did we unfortunately unlearn? Um, and we want to really in this conversation get into the details and understand why, right? These things don't just happen. Cities don't just go from unsafe to safe and back to unsafe by accident. They happen for specific reasons. So first, I want to take us back to 2013. Uh, Los Angeles announces that for the 10th straight year, crime has decreased. And we are now Los Angeles is now the safest city of its size, meaning any city of more than two million residents has no no city has a lower crime rate than Los Angeles. Things seem to be going very well. Um, Obviously, things have not continued on that trajectory since. So, uh, uh, John, you were in the district attorney's office for that phase, that 10 years that crime was going down each year and and reached a, a nadir um, in 2013. What were we doing right? What was keeping our city and driving the, the decrease in crime um, and the better handling of, of criminal justice in the city at that time? All right. Thank you. Yeah. You know, um, there are a lot of factors that uh, factor into the rise and fall of the crime rate. But I, I got to L.A. in 1998. I started in the DA's office, and it was bad in L.A. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a gang problem that was out of control, and most people said we would never get it under control. Now, 10 years before I got here, the 
California legislature passed was what was called the STEP Act, which was the legislation that we used to target gang crimes. In 1994, we got the three strikes law. And in 1997, we got a major piece of anti-gun legislation, which is sometimes referred to now as the big gun allegation, the 1020 life law. I think all of those laws working together in synergy helped to bring down the crime rate. Now, there were other factors, undoubtedly, but those three laws targeted hardcore criminal offenders. Mm -hmm. um, and the way I the crime works is, I mean, if you know anything about gangs and street crime, you know that there is a, a small but very active element of individuals who drive most of the violent crime most crime is driven by a small concentrated group of criminals correct absolutely like mm -hmm. you know even most gang members are not shooters you mm -hmm. know they might swing a little dope they might get engaged in other kinds of crimes but it, it takes a rare individual that's able to take a gun and pull a trigger on another person mm -hmm. every gang has those people but they're not in large numbers so these laws were designed to target that population and I think what happened is over time, enough of those people were taken out of society for a long period of time, such that you got some momentum going against the gangs and going against crime in general. So I mm -hmm. like to say when I got to L.A., every young person was running around in baggy clothes. Some were carrying guns. And 15 years later, kids were running around in skinny jeans, carrying skateboards. It was an incredible transformation. Incredible. I want, want to make note, not just in well-to-do areas, because this is the where I think uh, the recent criminal justice reform movement has distorted some of what transpired during the crime drop in America. It, it, crime didn't just drop in nice areas. It dropped in the the cities that were most ha the the air neighborhoods that were most harmed by crime okay in la it wasn't just beverly hills and brentwood that became more more safe compton inglewood south los angeles these places became far more livable and their citizens far more insulated against crime and harm on a day-to-day -day basis yeah no uh you know law enforcement tends to uh direct its resources to where the crime is happening most and most serious Serious, mm -hmm. And uh, so I think those laws, persistent law enforcement, um, LAPD ramped up its staffing. You know, there's nothing like having more police officers on the street uh, engaged in what we hope is constitutional policing, uh, along with uh, no nonsense prosecutions help bring down that crime rate, which we enjoyed from, I think you pointed out, crime peaked in like the early 90s mm -hmm. and all of a sudden, once those laws started kicking in, we saw a steady and precipitous drop in crime up until very recently. Yeah. And just to give people context here, Los Angeles peaked. Los Angeles murder rate peaked in 1992. There was 1,092 murders in the city of Los Angeles that year. 2012 at the low point, 298. So we went from 1,092 to 298. Okay. New York experienced a similar decline from i think there was 2100 murders in new york proper in 1992 1992 was a bad year for big city crime um another 70 70 drop to its low point in the early 2010s um another thing i also noticed at that time 
the politicians and the police department, the police administration working very much in sync and incredibly laudatory of each other. Um, in, in the piece that I re- read about the announcement of the low crime rate in Los Angeles, then Mayor Antonio Villaraigosa, who may uh, may have his faults, but he presided over incre- uh, incredibly Good, good era in terms of public safety. And he and Los Angeles Police Chief Charlie Beck were just speaking glowingly of each other. That is not how you hear politicians and law enforcement administrators and officials speak in recent years. And it's interesting that they that this has completely changed over the course of a decade. Yeah, we have a district attorney who doesn't even speak to the L.A. County sheriff who dis- disrespects them and disregards them at every turn. Yeah. So, I, you know, I don't know how how public safety is supposed to move forward when you have a district attorney who's not willing to work with the other law enforcement partners and justice system partners. Absolutely. And we're going to get to him. Don't don't you fret. Um, another piece of addressing gang issues that that seems to have it seems to be a, a piece of the pie in the 90s and, and aughts um, were uh, were gang injunctions. This was initially instituted by L.A. City Attorney James Hahn, uh, specifically in regards to the Blythe Street gang in the San, San Fernando Valley. Um, there was some pushback in terms of civil rights organizations, but um, these gang injunctions were, were kind of acknowledged as a key piece of attacking the gang problem and and you know and catalyzing that that drop in crime. Could you tell us a little bit about the gang injunctions, how they worked, and you know your view on their usefulness? Well, the gang injunctions uh, worked primarily uh, by law enforcement officers contacting and identifying what they believed to be gang members. Um, they named them in an injunction. They were later served with notice that they were named in an injunction and could no longer loiter or gather with other gang members in certain areas. Uh, it was highly effective in allowing law enforcement to uh, break up group gatherings in certain areas, uh, but it had some constitutional problems and ultimately mm-hmm. the courts found that uh, it was a flawed system, uh, partly because people didn't have a way of challenging their identification mm-hmm. as a gang member and being put in the injunction. And and so those went away. I think it's probably been about, what, five, six, seven years ago we lost mm-hmm. the gang injunction. And so the gang injunctions, they seem to be uh, somewhat adjacent to a concept known as broken windows policing, which a lot of people attribute the, the big drops in crime in L.A. and New York to. Um, the way the broken windows policing is described is that visible signs of crime, antisocial behavior and civil disorder create an urban environment that encourages further crime and disorder and that target that tar- targeting minor crimes such as vandalism, loitering, public drinking and fare evasion. That's specifically in New York in terms of public uh, public transportation the subway create an atmosphere of order and lawfulness um this during the periods of low crime as the crime uh, situation was getting better it was somewhat accepted that the the theory of broken windows policing the proof was in the pudding we had the results you could theorize it back in 1992 whether or not it was going to work but we saw that it did it was instituted in la and new york and it worked it got results um to what extent would you attribute the um, the 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 improvement in uh, in public safety to broken windows policing, and to what extent is it being followed or or disregarded at this point? Well, I'm a big believer in the broken windows theory of community safety. Uh, mm-hmm. We all know that when you're in an area that's dirty, you don't think anything about throwing trash on the street. Mm-hmm. When you're in an area that's clean, you tend to act a little differently. You put it in your pocket. Now, that's a very simplistic analogy, but 
it, it works on a broader basis as well. People mm-hmm. live up to the expectations that are set for them. And so um, broken windows was a theory of policing that took seriously that we can get to some very bad places taking very short steps. Mm-hmm. Now, these these kinds of crimes in isolation seem rather minor, but these are the kind of kinds of things that happen quite often in the aggregate. It can be a big problem, um, especially in certain neighborhoods. Now, you know, if you live, you know how L.A. is broken down. Yeah, you can be in, a, in a one area. Two blocks later, the entire you know characterization of the neighborhood changes. So totally different atmosphere. Loitering is a big problem. I mean, if you're a homeowner or a business owner, having people hanging out and disrupting the enjoyment of your property or your business can be a big problem when it happens every day, when it happens for hours at a time. And when uh, especially young people loiter in the same places, they tend to get into a lot of mischief. So um, taking that kind of behavior seriously, not to the extent that you're really looking to punish people for it, you just want to break it up. You know, you just don't want to have it become a mainstay of the environment. Mm -hmm. I I saw it termed as uh, criminalizing certain activities that are precursors to crime or maybe that was where the civil right where the civil rights issues came in in regards to the gang injunctions. But you're looking, you know, and and maybe you can explain the notion of basic probable cause that the cops need to have probable cause to go and uh, approach a citizen make an arrest or explore a crime um, and that certain behavior that at first glance appears innocent is actually grounds for probable cause that perhaps that, you know, if you know that a corner is if if there is information that a corner is uh, a, a grounds for a drug ring of some uh, to a certain extent that, uh, you know, back in the 90s, the usage of a pager, for instance, was indicators that you might be participating in that dr- in that uh, uh, uh in that drug business on that corner or that loitering might indicate the same thing and that by snuffing out the seemingly more innocent, the lower level uh, offense uh, prevented a more significant offense. Yeah, I, I think the public had a, a legitimate concern that some of the policing around the broken windows approach mm-hmm. uh, tended to be a little too aggressive. Mm hmm. Uh, and maybe didn't respect the constitutional rights of people who were just gathered in a place where they had a right to be you know sure. it was a fine line and our law enforcement i don't think was as good then as it is today i think i think both of our major agencies in la are, are very good and getting better mm-hmm. but I, you know there were legitimate concerns about how that policing uh, was put into effect probable cause you know or reasonable suspicion even a lower standard requires that police officers have a reasonable and articulable suspension, mm-hmm. something more than a hunch before they detained a person, um, you know, to, to engage a police investigation. Mm-hmm. But oftentimes the complaint was that officers were just picking on people. Yeah. So and that is that is the fine line that we we have to we have to walk. And that is the balance to be conscious of of, and, you know, have law enforcement be rational observers of activity that does that is grounds for reasonable suspicion or probable cause with not picking on people and not, you know, impeding on their basic civil rights. Um, You know, Sean, in your experiences, you know, as a criminal defense attorney um, and you, you were handling a lot of cases in Southern California, you know, what were you 
seeing um, during, you know, during a period in which there was decreasing crime in terms of, you know, how the law was being enforced, whether rightly or wrongly, where, you know, where we were trying, where society was was finding that balance between um, taking a a very stern approach towards criminality um, with people's civil rights that's that seemed to be um, striking a better balance than it is today. Yeah. You know. As a criminal defense attorney, I'm on the opposite side of of John, right? Mm-hmm. But not only the opposite side in terms of defending people while while he's prosecuting people, but you know, John is in one um, county, right? He's in one courthouse most of the time, unless you're in a special unit and you're going around different courthouses within the same county. But as a criminal defense attorney, I'm hitting different courthouses, different mm-hmm. counties, seeing different judges, seeing different types of deals for the same crime charged. And the interesting thing about that is LA has historically been a very lenient county. When a client would come to me and they commit a crime, whether it was, you know, a serious felony or a low grade misdemeanor, anytime they showed me that their citation or their bail work is out of LA, whether, you know, LA was tough on crime at the time or not tough on crime, LA has historically been very liberal compared to the surrounding counties in terms of how uh, harsh they prosecute crimes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the counties that are surrounding us, like Ventura County, has a huge sign in their jail. I think they were forced to take it off recently. <laughs> but there's a huge sign when you walk in and it says, this is not LA County. Wow. Um, so, wow. you know, those types of, of counties, for example, when I was practicing in LA County, if you got a first time DUI, this is just a very minor example. There is, and there is no accident or no, you know, aggravating circumstances, you're not going to jail. Mm-hmm. In Orange County, excuse me, in Ventura County, there's a mandatory minimum of 48 hours for first-time DUI. So, you know, although LA has seen, um, you know, rises in law like gang injunctions, now there's gang enhancements, three strikes, other types of other types of laws that they would take advantage of. No matter where we were in the curve, LA has always been very liberal when it comes to when it comes to punishment. And you would always when you would get a case as a criminal defense attorney, you always before you look at the location, you're like, I hope it's in L.A. Mm -hmm. and I hope it's these few courthouses because, you know, you're going to get an easier an easier ride at it. But in terms of how tough laws where that balancing act is, you know, to me, when I was practicing for over a decade, you know, year in, year out, handled every case from a, you know, simple uh, misdemeanor all the way to, you know, murders and gang injunctions and everything and everything else that goes along with it. The more power you give people, unfortunately, the more they take. Mm-hmm. And so when you give, you know, the police power, when you give district attorneys a lot of power, sometimes it's hard for them to check themselves, mm-hmm. you know, and it's very important for the, for the city that the district attorney's office and law enforcement, you know, are lockstep in their prosecution and their handling of cases. But sometimes certain police officers, sometimes certain DAs take that power and they push the limits. Mm-hmm. You know, they push the limits and push the limits and see how far they could get to make to make that, that arrest. And as a criminal defense attorney, truly it's our job to, you know, be the person sounding the alarm that you know, yes, they do have this power. Yes, they do have, you know, the right or possibly they could be right in their, you know, uh, cost statement for making an arrest. But it's it's our obligation to constantly push back and to constantly make sure that um, the balances, you know, are equitable. Sure. That, 
you know, yes, crime, there's a line for crime, but there's also a line for a police officer walking up to someone and making an arrest or making a detention just because they have a hunch or a belief of a crime or mm -hmm. a hunch or a belief that they're in a gang. There, there's always that tough balance. But, you know, I think my point is that L.A. has always been on the far liberal side of mm -hmm. this all. You know, if you go to the outside counties, crime never spikes really the way it spikes in LA. Mm -hmm. And um, even though they all have, they have the same loss for the most part, you know, they, they come from the state, but the way they, you know, the way you prosecute, the way you, you conduct yourself as an officer, you stick to the law and, you know, the more you stay within the confines and don't push, the longer you're going to get away with being able to be a strict police force in a strict mm -hmm. city. And so, and that's an interesting point because despite Los Angeles being on a relative basis, less, less harsh in its penalties and its consequences and its, you know, baseline deterrent effects, that did not stop us from experiencing, you know, a, a monumental drop in crime from the early nineties through the nineties. And then that 10 year period that, that hit a low, you know, that led us to a low point in our, our safest period ever in 2013. So, you know, we're trying to balance, we have an advert, the adversarial nature of, you know, criminal defense attorneys and trying to, um, pump the brakes on prosecutorial and, and police power, um, that pushing back against, you know, the, the cops and, uh, uh law enforcement and prosecutors, Try, you know, trying to be more strict. And we found a, a balance that seemed to, um, that cultivated safe communities in a safe city. Okay. So that, that's 2013. That brings us to, so let's now look at where the inflection point is and, and where things started to go in another direction. So 2014, a, a ballot measure makes the ballot uh, in California um, in, in the elections that year. It is Prop 47. It is described as the Safe Neighborhoods and School and Schools Act. Oh, wow. That sounds pretty good. The Safe Neighborhoods and Schools Act. Who doesn't want safe neighborhoods and, and schools? Um, and so what was that in practice, not just in name? It was a law that changed certain low-level crimes from potential felonies to misdemeanors. Claiming that the savings from re reduced incarceration costs will be invested into drug and mental health treatment programs for at-risk students and victim services. So essentially, what we were saying was, okay, we've solved crime. We have safe communities and safe streets right now. We're obviously, you know, we're, we're incarcerating too many people. It costs the state and the cities a lot to in keep people in jail. We can take our foot off the gas pedal a little bit, be less, incarcerate less people, be less strict in enforcing criminal penalties, and shift some of that money to mental health, to drug programs, to after school programs and things of that nature. And we are going to have we're going to maintain safety and have a more just, more equitable society. That was the promise of Prop 47. John, if you could tell us a little bit about the tangible impact of Prop 47 and did it live up to its promises? No, I, I think Prop 47 has been an abysmal failure in two major mm -hmm. ways. You talked about how Prop 47 worked to reduce a lot of felony crimes to misdemeanors, both on the theft side and on the drug side. And to most people outside of the criminal justice system, that sounds perfectly reasonable, especially when you're living in a low crime environment mm -hmm. relative to what we saw in the 90s. Uh, and I'm no different. You know, I, I am a, someone who thinks that we have to, our criminal laws have to be nimble and be adapted to what's happening in real time. So yep. in the 90s, we had a crisis. We needed tough laws yes. to deal with it. But as we brought that crime rate down, then it was appropriate to go back in and make modifications. Prop 47 made the wrong modifications. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, first on the drug side, which isn't talked about as much, uh, it reduced felony possession crimes, which carry basically a high term of about three years in state prison, probation to up, up to three years in state prison for possession of cocaine, meth, and hard street drugs. The reason that that time was important is because our criminal courts had adapted uh, drug courts to deal with hardcore drug offenders and to foster treatment for them. And the way our drug courts were working is to um, use that confinement time up to three years as inpatient treatment time Mm -hmm. for the offender. So it was all voluntary. Person had to want to go into treatment. They go into treatment. The court would start them off usually inpatient treatment for a period of, of a month, maybe two months, whatever that particular person needed before moving to outpatient. That time would come off of that three years confinement time. So it was just like credits for being in custody. And so I want to be very clear because there's one of these recent myths in the discourse around criminal justice is that you can either incarcerate someone or give them help. You can't do both. But that's not true, right? That is not true. And you can you can incarcerate them, remove them as a threat to innocent people and also give them help simultaneously. Yeah, no, it's the false choice to think that you can't do both. And particularly in the case of our drug courts, the -hmm. confinement was less in a jail setting and more in a therapeutic setting. And what would happen is they would they would move to outpatient. They go a period of time clean and sober, fall off the wagon and start over again. But the courts had the confinement time to start them back inpatient treatment and work with them until those periods of sobriety got longer and longer. But when we reduced those crimes to misdemeanors, Mm -hmm. we lost that three years of confinement time. So now, I mean, the most that a court can do is confine somebody for six months. And that's just not enough time to help with the hardcore uh, drug addiction. Uh, I know people weren't thinking that when they voted for Prop 47, they were thinking, oh, you know, drugs were too hard on drug offenders. It's a health problem. It's not a crime problem. So let's reduce these to misdemeanors. But when they did that, they pulled the rug right out from under the Mm -hmm. drug courts. On the theft side, you know, it reduced a lot of of, of theft crimes, which were wobblers, basically. They turned Mm -hmm. a wobbler is a crime that can be charged as either a misdemeanor or a felony at the discretion of the prosecutor. And typically what happens is, you know, in the case of a wobbler, the prosecutor will charge it as a misdemeanor the first couple of times a person commits the offense. But Mm -hmm. after about the third time, it gets ramped up to a felony for obvious reasons. Uh, But Prop 47 reduced a lot of those crimes to straight misdemeanors. And it's and so, eliminated some crimes. Yeah. And so everyone, and this is the one that's made, made the rounds and that a lot of people are aware of in the essential, uh, ostensibly the decriminalization of stealing up to $950 of, of merchandise or, or anything in the state of California. I believe it or not. And, and I was actually surprised to know this. There had always been a threshold between misdemeanor and felony. It was $400. This increased it to $950. But once again, I imagine most people when they, they first encountered this proposition in this change, they figured, well, well, okay, if they're stealing $817, there's still going to be some punishment. Just because it's reduced to a misdemeanor doesn't mean that they can just go, all this retail theft can just happen without consequence. But 
that isn't quite how it's played out, right? You've got so much petty theft that simply apparently, correct me if I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, please let me know, that doesn't get punished at all. No, that's true. We have, um, you know, now we're getting into some of Gascon's local policies here in L.A. County. I can't speak to what the other DAs are doing around the state, but I know they're not doing what he's doing, at least not yet. Correct. Outside of San Francisco, of course. Mm-hmm. But he he's not prosecuting misdemeanors um, for adults or juveniles. Now, let mm-hmm. me go back and clean that up a little bit. He's not prosecuting juveniles for any misdemeanor theft crimes at all. Mm-hmm. So the message that's being sent to 15, 16, 17 year olds is you can go out and steal up to a thousand dollars worth of merchandise. The DA is not going to prosecute you in a traditional sense. So I want people to, I want listeners to understand what what's going on here. This and, means the Los Angeles District Attorney George Gascon. If you are seventeen years and eleven months old and you go and steal eight hundred dollars worth of merchandise, you may be detained, but you will be let go, and he will not char- He will not prosecute you. You will be let back out on the street, essentially with no consequence. It, for all intents and purposes, for a minor theft up to a certain point has been essentially decriminalized. That's correct. And he's diverting a lot of adults to, at least on their first, uh, you know, theft crime for, for misdemeanor theft. You know, $950, Matt, is a lot of money to a lot of people. Yep. You know, I don't know yes, it is. to whom that's petty. I mean, I make pretty good money, but $1,000 is a lot of money. Even yeah, this ain't a candy bar. So. It ain't stealing a candy bar from the, from the shop. This is legitimate theft. And, you know, I've I've criticized this policy for incentivizing or encouraging uh, certain criminal behavior that some young people might not get involved in. And maybe that's Mm -hmm. too strong of an indictment to use the word encourage. Right. But incentivize incentivize, I think is appropriate because I think of what I was like in my youth and what was going on around me. And what mm-hmm. kept me from engaging in certain behaviors was this healthy fear of the law of, of some consequence. If I got caught, mm-hmm. if that had been removed from my life, then I'm not so sure that I wouldn't have been out there engaged in a lot of this activity and, and probably wouldn't be in the DA's office today. So I worry about these young people. I Absolutely. They don't have the structure and the direction that they should be getting from our county's top law enforcement officer. It's kind of ridiculous when you think about it. And the, and the one thing that I'd add to, even though I'm on, even though I'm on the defense side and these, you know, lessening of punishments has always been like, you know, candy to defense attorneys because we walk in and our job is so much easier. Um, not only are people, you know, who, who have the propensity to co- commit crime, not only are they more incentivized to do so because there's nothing on the other end, but it also gives, and what you guys were talking about earlier, gangs and other people in the community that are influencing younger people to come in and join. What yeah. What a lot of people don't know is that a lot of kids from LA are influenced to do crime. And when when policies are put in place that basically decriminalizes things for them, gangs are very smart, not just gangs yes. from LA, gangs across the country. These are very, very smart people. The, they know what they're doing. They know the law. They have lawyers like you know, myself and, and other people, well, I used to do it, but and other people telling them what the laws are, what the punishments are, and they're very smart at exploiting it. And a lot of kids that get caught up in this, you know, some of them were forced to do it. Some of them are influenced to do it. And 
something that doesn't get talked about enough. When someone from a different state sees that a neighboring state or a state that mm-hmm. they get to easily could yield a bigger profitability for their gang because their uh, foot soldiers, uh, if we're going to call them that, aren't going to go to jail. They don't have to pay for attorneys. They don't have to pay to you know make situations right. People won't get punished and stay in jail. If they know a state is, is essentially you know having a ribbon cutting for theft under 950 bucks, then guess what? You know, the same way business people leave California to go somewhere else to pay less taxes, gangs are going to send their criminals to commit yep. crimes that are in, in that caveat, that window of we're going to be OK if we commit this. And there's a reason why malls in San Francisco are being looted and L.A. are being looted and Detroit are being looted. There's a reason why you don't hear about a mall in Ventura County being looted. There's a mm-hmm. reason why you don't hear about them all in Orange County being looted, even even though it's you know a 30 minute drive for us here in L.A. And it's strictly because they can't get away with it there. It's going to cost yeah. them a ton of money to you know, the, the, the bad end. If they get caught, is going to cost them a lot more money than they than they would cost them here in L.A. Mm-hmm. No, uh, criminals and gangs, they they think about things. They talk to each other. They strategize. They think about it in a very business like manner. And when they, f- they they find the vulnerabilities in the legal system, they find. And if you're creating the vulnerabilities, it, it only incentivizes them further. You think gang members who are 22, 25, 27, you think that they don't see that a district attorney is no longer essentially decided not to prosecute minors, no matter the circumstance. What do you think they do? do they go and recruit minors to go commit the crimes right and it's an easier sell because they tell you hey what what's the worst thing that's going to do you get get a mark on your record you're not even going to juvie it's a lot easier sell that way it's easier for for them to to corrupt the youth um and so i I think this is the type of really just common sense obvious stuff that people find they, they think there's no way that we could be removing these guardrails from public safety because they so obviously will be taken advantage of but no that's that's those are the guardrails that we have removed um in electing uh, uh, the gentleman, George Gascon, who by happenstance, uh, I'm sure you'll find it be incredibly surprised to find out, was the co-author of Prop 47. Once again, we're going to get to him in fa- a lot more detail in just a moment, but I want to finish up on Prop 47 and let's call it what was going wrong in the pre-Gascon era here in L.A. Um, so Prop 47 additionally reduced the sentence um, and let out early a lot of non- nonviolent offenders. Am I correct? Yes. Yes. Okay. So we opened the jails, we reduced the prison population and let out people who were ostensibly nonviolent. Um, but there seemed, and this is something John has harped on, there's there's a bit of a myth of the nonviolent drug offenders. There's this myth that the prisons are, f- are filled and we have, quote unquote, a mass incarceration problem because we're locking up all these not, quote unquote, nonviolent drug offenders. And these people that uh, you hear the horror stories about someone getting caught with an ounce and a half of weed and going to jail for 20 years. But these really are distorted one-offs. These are not indicative of the the larger prison the, the prison population at large. Um, eighty percent of the state prison population is there for either serious or violent felonies. And John, if you could maybe expand on on this myth of the the jails being full of nonviolent drug offenders and how the uh, the retroactive under resentencing of criminals and letting them out of jail under Prop 47 contributed to the to crime uh, increasing 2015 to 2020. 
Yeah, let me say that in 23 years that I've been a prosecutor in L.A. County, I've never seen anyone go into custody for possession of simple possession of weed. But that is a narrative that you hear over and over again. People think that that is commonplace and it happens all over the country. Uh, you were right. 80% of our prison population is there serving a for a serious or violent felony. And 90% is either there for that or they have a serious or violent felony prior. So um, our prisons at this time, since realignment, are housing serious and violent offenders. And it's serious and violent offenders that are driving our incarceration rates right now. Mm-hmm. Now, there was a, a popular book and a popular movie that made the argument that mass incarceration was being driven by these unfair laws that focused on low-level offenders and that there was some racist element to it and whatnot. But that's been debunked by a lot of researchers who say, no, what's driving our incarceration rate is serious and violent offenders. And it's when we say serious and violent in California, we're not just talking about violent crime. We're not using those terms in a colloquial sense. Mm -hmm. Serious and violent refers to a very short list of very serious crimes. Mm -hmm. Serious and violent in California refers to only about 43 crimes in the penal code starting, you know, with murder at the top end and including all the serious sex crimes and crimes involving weapons and serious injuries. But there are a lot of crimes that involve violence that don't come under that definition. And that's important to know because there's a mm-hmm. lot of violent offenders who we refer to as nonviolent if, you, if we're using the everyday definitions of those terms. Mm-hmm. And just because somebody's, you have to, people have to remember, not every case goes to trial. So, when someone goes to prison, they, you know, even as even even if they go to prison for drug possession per se, they were probably charged with much more. The mm-hmm. facts against them and the charges against the majority of people that end up in custody were much more steep and much more severe as a as a result of a plea bargain, which happens, I would say probably in 90 plus percent of cases, you plea. Because you get two things. You either get a, a lot of charges or special allegations when they used to charge special allegations dropped, or you get less time. So when you know we say, you know, 80% or 20% of people that are in there are in there for nonviolent stuff or in prison for nonviolent stuff, I would venture to guess a majority of that 20% that's technically there for nonviolent stuff was were actually charged with more severe crimes either mm-hmm. in that specific case that put them in custody or a case previously. Um, and, you know, we just see the final like receipt, but we don't know what the actual menu uh, was. Mm-hmm. That's a great, that's a great point. And a, another kind of mecha- key mechanical feature of, of our criminal justice system that the vast majority of these, these items uh, in these cases get pled down and the eventual charges do not reflect the totality of the criminality that was, that was uh, at issue. And, and also that just because someone is nonviolent, if they're a habitual criminal, and this is what we're seeing a lot, what with these stories that are driving people nuts now, where 
uh, where criminal where, where uh, violent crimes do occur, and then you look, and the offender has a rap sheet a mile long, and it might not have been criminal at the, it might not have been violent at the time. This seems to be uh, the case for a, a case that you know we can't discuss in depth uh, that John is on because he is the prosecutor on the case, but that is of high interest to a lot of people um, uh, in my community. Brianna Kupfer, who was recently murdered while working at a furniture store in we'll call it mid Hollywood, um, but that that's something that people have to keep in mind nonviolent does not nonviolent does not mean that you're not a threat to society okay you you are a habitual criminal that has a number of marks on their record steps need to be taken to keep you away uh, to to keep you away from innocent civilians um so now that brings us to our current era of criminal justice and criminality in los angeles and the era of the reformist or decarcerationist district attorneys Popping up over the last handful of years, we have some big cities have been electing district attorneys who have a completely different, if whatever was going on, what what flipped the script in the 90s and the 2000s in terms of taking a, a more strict and harsher approach towards crime and prosecution, they believe that they, they think that this uh, they, they do not think highly of this. They believe that we are, uh, as a nation, over-incarcerate. We believe that we're reinforcing criminals as criminals by sending them to prison. And they have, as stated goals, reduction of the prison population, regardless of the impact on public safety. Although they keep on claiming that, that reducing the prison population will increase public safety, even against the, the hard and fast and blatant objective uh, uh, results that run contrary to their claims. Um, one of the, you know, you've got uh, one of these individuals was George Gascon. He was the district attorney of San Francisco, um, prov- presided over a period of exploding criminality in San Francisco, and then decided he wasn't satisfied with having ruined that city and decided to come down here to Los Angeles and run for district attorney in 2020. Um, he was funded heavily and don't give me this BS about this being a conspiracy. It's publicly there and he doesn't even deny it. George Soros gave him over $2 million for his campaign. That's a lot of money for a district attorney's race. He was funded and supported by a number of other big names, celebrities, um, under the guise that, that uh, as we've been discussing, our approach towards crime was ineffective. That this was unfair. That we were not keeping our, our streets safer by taking a harsher uh, approach towards crime and criminality and incarcerating criminals. Um, and that ev- essentially ignoring all the pro- all the progress that we had made in the '90s and the aughts, and disregarding any notion of what we did that worked at that point. It's like he woke up in 2013 and just assumed that crime had always been low. Disregarded any any of the work that we had done to get it that low. Um, and he was elected. Uh, kind of through with the the um with the tailwinds of the Black Lives Matter movement and the reaction to the George Floyd murder in two, the summer of 2020 um and he was elected by you know a, a, he came from behind he had he he had uh gone up against the incumbent district attorney Jackie Lacey an African American woman here in Los Angeles in the primary in February and lost by about 20 points but Jackie Lacey didn't get a majority she just won a, a plurality so they went to a runoff in November and George Gascon came from behind and upset her and was was elected district attorney. Um, 
Since then, 30 cities in Los Angeles County have voted no confidence on this individual. Clearly, there's a lot of people that find his approach towards law enforcement and his worldview to be troubling in the way that he has implemented laws and directives and operated the district attorney's office to be increasing to be decreasing public safety and putting citizens at risk. Um, John, that this is John's boss. He is the deputy district attorney. George Gascon is the district attorney. Yet John and a couple other individuals from the district attorney's office, well, behind closed doors, every person in the district attorney's office who is not hired by Gascon will tell you that this guy is a demon and they cannot, but they are horrified by what they're seeing out of him. But a few have been, you know, had their druthers to go speak, speak more publicly. So uh, a couple comments that, that John has made that I found, you know, kind of in principle to describe what's going wrong right now. Um, one, there is a movement against institutions of public safety that ignores personal responsibility and culpability for crime and instead blames the infrastructure that is tasked with preventing and keeping us safe from crime. Also, we have to reject the magical thinking that tells us less criminal accountability will lead to greater public safety. That's really the core of the issue with Gascon and these other reformist D DAs. They simply think locking up people less, jailing less people, reducing incarceration will simply magically lead to greater public safety and keep people safe. The results keep on telling us that they're wrong and they they refuse to acknowledge that. But the the problem in, in refusing to acknowledge reality here results in the butchering of of innocent individuals. It leads to re, it, there's blood on the hands of these people because this has real world consequences. So to get into the details and the blood and guts of what George Gascon is doing that is hampering, incinerating public safety here in Los Angeles. First off, he uh, uh, his first day in office, he issued a, a memo essentially decriminalizing or stating that he was go, not going to prosecute a number of very obvious crimes, resisting arrest, trespassing, driving with a, a suspended license, certain uh, low-level drug possession, and making criminal threats. I mean, these are obvious crimes, yet uh, ostensibly, he no longer considers them. And he, he stated that he will not be prosecuting them for the most part, uh, essentially, unless they draw blood. Um, John, if you could tell us a little bit more and give us some more detail and context on the apparent decriminalization of a number of, of seemingly you know, serious crimes. Yeah, this is uh, what I alluded to earlier with regard to his adult misdemeanor policy, mm -hmm. where he has, and you did a great job of listing many of the crimes that he will no longer allow his prosecutors to pursue, in, including things like criminal threats and uh, resisting arrest. I mean, in an era Not we're trying to uh, de-escalate uh, problems between police and, and the community, why would a DA announce that he's going to allow people to resist arrest when we know that, that kind of behavior leads to catastrophic circumstances? Um, and it's a head scratcher because these are the kind of offenses that most people agree uh, should be addressed. Uh, yes. You know, not necessarily with incarceration, but he won't even charge them. Mm -hmm. You know, how do we do anything with people who are engaged in these uh, behaviors if he won't charge them in the first place? Uh, it, he, this is what I think is going on in part. I think that George Gascon is part of some think tank, some group of people who are impacting laws all over the country, wherever there's a so-called progressive DA. 
mm-hmm. and they've gotten together and come up with a list of offenses that they think police officers use to antagonize the community mm-hmm. and things like trespassing or resisting arrest, uh, they conclude are often um, done by people of, of color or minorities or blacks or Hispanics, whatever term you want to use. And so they're trying to take that away. And what their hope is there will be fewer arrests of people who look like me, for example, if I get into a tussle with a police officer who's lawfully trying to take me into custody. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so essentially not enforcing the law and and not acknowledging criminal behavior as such strictly because it there seems to be a correlation between racial outcomes and that criminal behavior. Is that an accurate way of describing it? Very accurate. He wants to be able to stand up at the end of the day and he's propping himself up as some type of national figure on uh, equity, you know, and, and fighting mass incarceration. But he wants to be able to stand up at the end of the day and say, fewer African-Americans were prosecuted on my watch. Fewer Hispanics were prosecuted on my watch. And he expects people to applaud that, even if it means a deterioration of public safety across society as a whole. And even though it means that most of the victims of this kind of behavior are also African-Americans and Hispanics, but he doesn't see the victims. They're invisible to him. He He sees the offender as the victim of society, even in a case where they victimized a real person. They, the, they're essentially the safety of innocent civilians is not a priority to him. The notion of trying to recalibrate the, the criminal justice system to reflect what he believes is equity is his only priority. Keeping people safe simply isn't one. Absolutely right. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Sean, go ahead. Yeah, coming from coming from my perspective as a criminal defense attorney. When someone comes to the to this you know stage and says that they want criminal justice reform and they want to help, you know, rehabilitate people and put them you know in, in a better position in life, or even uh, starting short from re- rehabilitation, essentially decriminalizing things for the sake of justice reform. To me, even as a criminal defense attorney, that's shocking to hear. Mm-hmm. If if I was in charge of reform. To me, it starts with actually making sure that the court has jurisdiction over you, because if when the court has jurisdiction over you, meaning when you're charged with a crime, the court can do many things to help you rehabilitate yourself. Even if Mm -hmm. it's a lower level offense, they could send you to a drug seminar um, if you have drug violations. If you, um, for example, domestic violence, you go to a year long domestic violence courts. There are a lot of things that the court could do, and a lot of judges aren't trigger happy just sending people into custody. You know, a Mm -hmm. lot of these things the defendant pays for himself and it helps them rehabilitate. But if someone wanted to come in and make a true change, that change actually happens in the in the jails. Our jails Mm -hmm. and what's happening in our prisons, it's not a place for people to go and rehabilitate themselves. It's a place for people to go and to get into more troubles. So to me, even as a criminal defense attorney, these crimes obviously benefit are and because they're not even either they're not being charged or the level of punishment is so low as a criminal defense attorney we it makes our job easier but the approach 
to crime was effective. What's, what's not effective is what happens after someone's put into custody. We're not putting money into helping people really rehabilitate themselves. Mm-hmm. We're actually sending them sometimes, most of the time, into a deeper abyss of criminality when we just send them in and, and forget about them. The worst thing you could do is just let them be on the street, do whatever they want, and never arrest them because that just incentivizes them to keep going and to keep doing worse. Which is what we're doing. Which is what we're doing. The real yes. thing to do is to get jurisdiction over these people and help them overcome. And the only way you could help them overcome is if you charge them and you have mm-hmm. juris- you have jurisdiction. And I keep saying jurisdiction, but essentially what I mean is control. You have control over them. So like what you guys were talking about earlier, you could rehabilitate someone and have them in custody. Being in custody doesn't mean being in jail. It mm-hmm. could mean being in a rehab facility. It could be, you know, mean being, you know, we I've actually sent people to homeless shelters for, you know, some time or to, to help out or to churches where they helped out to, to be rehabilitated. Um, mm-hmm. So I think, you know, really, if we are really serious about reform, it's what happens after someone is taken into custody, not not why or, or stopping people from being taken into custody to begin with. Correct. Because once again, they need to be they, they need to be detained and segregated from the rest of society so they do not harm others. And that's what seems to never come come into into consideration um, with these with these reformist attorneys and guests. God, John, as you were. Yeah, let me just jump in. I, I think that last point was brilliant that we can have a transformational criminal justice system. We, I think that's what people want. People have wanted that for a long time. You know, we've always, we've long complained that our criminal justice system prosecutes people, warehouses them for a period of time, and then lets them back out with, with no additional skills, with no additional plan, with no, no additional way to navigate the future. We mm-hmm. can have a transformational system, but it's going to cost. It's not going to be cheap. It's going to require psychologists, it's going to require psychiatrists, doctors, vocational trainers, teachers, and we can have those people work with individuals outside our prison systems and inside of our prison systems. Mm-hmm. Now, when people do dangerous things, Matt, you're right, they need to be sequestered from society for some period of time until it's relatively certain that they're safe to be back out on the streets. But uh, most of our offenders are not are not committing those kinds of crimes. You know, they're committing the misdemeanors. They're Mm -hmm. maybe the habitual low-level felony offender who is frustrating because no matter how many times you've tried to work with them without putting them in custody, they leave you with that as the only alternative. These are people that we can help. Um, And and I think that's the direction people want to go. The only question is, are we ready to pay for that? Right. It's, and it's very simple. Like, let's not forget, it's very simple for someone like Yaskon to announce. And I think the reason why he announces I will not prosecute these types of crimes is because he he knows the police officers won't arrest for them. Mm-hmm. Why would a police officer put himself in harm's way, first of all, especially now when we're seeing so much violence against them? So if a police officer is out there and he may be alone, he may be with his partner and he sees something happening, and he knows for sure it won't be prosecuted because, you know, Gascon announced it to the world. He's not going to put himself at risk. He's not going to put his safety at risk. 
or he's not going to want to, then take the person into custody, write the reports, make the interviews, make sure they're housed properly. All of that just for the person to be released on their own recognizance, waiting charges that are never going to get filed. Yes, you will have less criminality if you decide not to arrest for crime. But meaning criminality in the numbers. The numbers are going to look better if you don't. Because that's that's what, yeah, I want people to understand this. The actual crime is even worse than the numbers suggest because one way way to get the numbers down is to simply not charge. And that is what's happening in many, many cases. And and it goes beyond that. Because you're announcing it, you're telling the officers, you're telling them, Yep. Not to arrest. Essentially, that's what you're doing. So forget that the person, in, for the most part, doesn't get charged. They don't even get arrested. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're and, also and, telling the community not to report the crime. So, so yeah. much more crime is God. going unreported when even before Gascon, uh, the FBI, uh, the Department of Justice did a study and concluded that half of all violent crime in this country is never reported. Mm-hmm. Half. Yeah. And yeah, when you have a district attorney who says, I'm not going to prosecute that, then people don't take the time to report. Police officers don't engage on those issues. So. And this is a dynamic that's very real for a lot of people that, that are listening to this podcast, that a lot of people who follow me, because I hear your stories, okay? I hear your stories about I was the victim of this crime, and the police came and they said that they can't do anything, and, and it, your mind is boggled. I hear I get one of at least one of these a week, some from friends of mine, some from random followers of mine. And you're experiencing this for real because this is what happens. When the police know that the district attorney is not going to charge the crime, they're not going to waste their time. And why would they? And this is what's becoming very real for a lot of people here in Los Angeles. Uh, another uh, uh, done it, you know, another change to the criminal justice system that Gascon instituted that's becoming very real for a lot of people uh, has to do with pretrial detention and zero bail. Um, once again, the philosophy sounds good. Gascon and his ilk will say you shouldn't be kept in jail longer just because you're not rich. Right. And that everyone's entitled to a speedy trial and innocent till proven guilty. And so if someone's been arrested, um, they, they shouldn't be they should be released. They shouldn't be held on bail unless they're a violent criminal. And in that case, why is money the the factor for whether or not that they can make bail or not? Why, why is it monetarily based? So, OK, we're not going to punish poor people and we're, we're not going to keep them in jail waiting for their trial. We're not going to detain them pretrial. Um, in practice, what happens is a bunch of violent criminals who are clearly committing crimes and a threat to public safety just get let back on the streets the next day. So once again, it sounds good, but it doesn't work out in practice. And this is something that became very real for a lot of people here in L.A. after 14 individuals were arrested for sacking the Grove for the smash and, uh, smash and grab robbery at the Grove. And then just shockingly, a, a week later, all of them were released. Every single one of them. Um, Eric Garcetti, you know, who has generally abandoned the position of mayor in the city, even he knew, even he knew this one went too far. And he held a press conference uh, acknowledging this and and advocating for reinstituting um, bail policy because it's just insane to keep on letting these criminals back on the streets with no no semblance of pretrial detention. So, uh, John, if you could tell us a little bit about how um, George Gascon has uh, shifted policies on bail and pretrial detention and and to the extent if, if what I just described is accurate. You know, it's absolutely accurate. And uh, prior to Gascon, typically uh, people were either released or by a judge based on the merits of the case. 
the judge would look at the offense, look at the person's history, the ties to the community. And in a lot of low-level cases, individuals were released on their own recognizance because there was some kind of risk assessment done by the judge that this person could be trusted to be released. In other cases, the, the court has a bail schedule for certain offenses. And the more serious the offense, the higher the bail. Mm-hmm. And that bail is the same for everyone, regardless of income. And I know this leads some people to believe that, in effect, it punishes people who have fewer resources. Um, but also, in effect, that bail schedule is designed to keep the community safe and ensure that people who commit crimes will appear in court and be held to account for what they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, an alternative to money bail has been suggested, and that's using some kind of risk assessment system. So we do away with bail altogether and use some kind of algorithm in which we input data and the computer will tell us where a person ranks on on a scale of risk. But that was voted down by the voters. The voters just rejected that policy in favor of money bail. So so the voters rejected it and Gascon went to directly against the will of the voters and instituted the policy anyways. Direct directly against it, except even worse, because he doesn't have any kind of risk assessment tool. He's just saying, you know, let him out. Right. And, you know. When, when we talk about bail, bail isn't something that's just, you know, an, an L.A. thing or a California thing. Bail yeah. has been around for quite some time on the state level, on the federal level, even in even in civil courts, you post bail when you're, you know, arguing uh, something of, of a high nature in a, in a high you know stress situation. Bail is just collateral. So, you know, in, in order for there to be a contract between two people, one person getting out of custody and the other people, the, the court having jurisdiction over you, there needs to be some sort of consideration for the exchange. So that consideration, if you are a low level you know, criminal, is OR. It's just, mm-hmm. we're going to trust you. Here, here's your ticket. Come back. You've had nothing in your history that shows you're a risk or shows you won't show up. In fact, it shows that you have stuff to lose. You have a family here. You have a home here. We're going to let you out. Not serious offense. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, if it's more serious, well, what do you serve to lose if you don't come back? The only thing really you could put is is a, a bail, right? And, and mm-hmm. on the federal level, it's even more stringent. On the state level, you could go to a bail bonds company and put as little as 1% down. So if you have $50,000 bail, there are bail bonds companies that'll take 1% of that $50,000 and work on a negotiated plan. That's not a lot of money. If you get mm-hmm. arrested on mm-hmm. the federal level, these, you know, the bails literally are dollar for dollar. You can't go to a bail bonds company. You're going to have to put up, you know, property or land. So th- this bail argument, it's it's interesting to me because it really has been uh, involved in our in our criminal justice system at every level for you know as long as the criminal justice system was around, because yeah. you simply can't do away with making up some new collateral. And an algorithm is is an interesting approach, but I don't I don't think that solves uh, solves the issue either. Who, who controls the algorithm and what factors yeah. and how they're going to be weighted? Gonna, yeah, right. Yeah, well, people who want to reduce the prison population uh, at, at all costs, even in the face of public safety results, and that's Matt, who controls it. People should also 
California, everyone has a right to a speedy trial. Yeah. So in the case of a felony, they have a right to a preliminary hearing within 10 days of their arraignment. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them waive that time because they want more time to prepare. But that's a choice that they make. If you if you're innocent and you believe the facts will show that you have a right to a preliminary hearing. So even if you don't have the money to make bail, it's not as if the law is going to require you like in some states. Now, this isn't true in every state, but in our state, uh, the law isn't going to require you to sit there and languish for months on end. Mm-hmm. And this is so. once again, this does not run contrary to the notion of innocent until proven guilty. You get your day in court. You get you have the right to a speedy trial. This is about a common sense assessment of whether or not you're an immediate threat to it, to to the community and to innocent, innocent citizens. And this is just one common sense and two time tested methods to uh, uh, to maintain public safety that these DAs and George Gascon have just thrown out the window. So. Uh, more so to the the how some of these seemingly innocent and seem you know and and seemingly mild changes in policy are manifesting themselves as just horrendous uh, uh, destruction and harm to innocent civilians. Um, a recent case of Tioni Theus and John, you mentioned that uh, uh, Gascon's policy of not filing charges for loitering for the solicitation of prosecution, and he issued a directive. In, in that regard. Um, and this essentially allows uh, victims like Ms. Theus to be human trafficked, to be uh, uh, to be abused by pimps. If you could get a little bit into this particular case and, and the failed direct Gascon directive that led to it. Right. So this this particular law that I talked about um, that punishes loitering for the solicitation of prostitution is is hotly debated. Um uh, by people who, some who think that we shouldn't punish the sex worker who's engaged in this kind of solicitation mm-hmm. and, and and others who think that, that enforcing this law gives us an opportunity to disrupt the conduct, disrupt the pimping and the trafficking, and also gives us an opportunity to have health and other services intervene into the lives of some of these young women and girls. So that's the position that I took, that this law should be enforced at least to the extent that police are encouraged to break up the solicitation. I mean, for no other reason, if for no other reason that businesses are trying to operate in areas where these women are literally walking around in their underwear, if that, uh, they're being, uh, children are being exposed to this. It's no way, we talked about broken windows, this is no way to allow a neighborhood to exist. So uh, when the DA said, and we, we talked about this, when the DA announces he's not going to prosecute something, what do you get? You get less police engagement. Right. You get community members who won't even call the police to come out and, and break it up. So you allow the pimps and the traffickers to have their business go unabated all night long. And I think the flaw, again, in Gascon. And I, I, you know, Gaston defenders will say he doesn't want to punish the sex workers. And that's fine. You don't have to punish the sex workers. We're not talking about putting these women in jail. We're just talking about enforcing the law against this type of loitering so we can break up the, the trafficking activity. Yeah. And, and let's be like just realistic about it. Again, I'm coming from a criminal defense standpoint, but there are a lot of cases I've had 
a lot of cases where, you know, I'm representing the sex worker or a child that was exposed to that. When these people go into court, even in even in the policies before GASCON, they wouldn't necessarily go to jail. In fact, I think 99% of cases I did where I was representing the sex worker, they never ended up in custody. But what they did always get was an opportunity to have the case dismissed if they were good for a period of six months to a year. They took an AIDS and STD test. They took courses on the importance of practicing safe sex. These are all great things for someone who is in that field, you know, to be exposed to. It is a it is a process of rehabilitation for them. And some of these people going through that process, going through these seminars and classes that the court made them go through, came out better for it. And, and you know, for the majority of it, you know, I never saw them again. They, these were not repeat offenders because they, you know, they had to stay good. They didn't want to have that case on their record. And in in order to get that case dismissed, it was called either diversion or DJ, where you essentially keep the case open and you force the person to go through a period of time where they're rehabbing and you put the condition of no other arrests. And if you're good, we'll dismiss this case. And that happened a lot. You know, let's let's not forget, you know, even though we are way more liberal in the way we're prosecuting cases now, we've always been on the on the liberal side. But mm -hmm. in, in these situations, you know, there are there even in uh, drug user situations when you don't arrest them and you don't give them jurisdiction of the court, the court has means to help these people. The court does not want to put these people in, in custody. It's not good for the court. It's not good for the city. They know that they know the politics behind it all. And when you don't even give the court and the city the opportunity to help someone rehabilitate, well, then well, then what's the point? If we're not arresting, we're not rehabilitating, then really, what are, what are we doing? Yeah, we're literally we're not doing anything. We're simply uh, uh, trying. Oh, at least what Gascon is doing is trying to find data points to support his warped view of criminal justice, which simply does, it assumes that by not arresting people or not incarcerating people will increase public safety. Um, another point of that philosophically, it seems to be his approach towards uh, uh, juvenile and youth crime. I've heard him comment on this quite often, and he always seems to appeal to this quack science that says that essentially his, his philosophy is that since the human, uh, the, the frontal cortex does not fully develop until you're 25, essentially up until 25 years old, no, a human being is not responsible for those uh, their actions, and thus he does not believe in incarcerating juveniles or the youth. I mean, literally, once again, if you're 17 months, 17 years and 11 months, and you commit a pretty egregious crime, there's no chance that you'll be tried as an adult and he will take every step to, uh, uh, to minimize your punishment and your incarceration. Um, John, you had recently um, uh, spoken up about an enhanced diversion program in regards to youth offenders. Um, and it seems that that your uh, um, your advocacy was influential here in that Gascon was going to start diverting some pretty dangerous, based on some pretty violent crimes, um, as long as they were youth offenders, was going to be diverting them from juven uh, juvie to some rehabilitation programs. Was that correct? If you could tell us a little bit about what he's doing in terms of youth crime and, and these um, enhanced diversion programs? Right. So uh, for people who don't know, a diversion program is a non-prosecution process for dealing with an offender. So, for example, if someone were to break the law, usually um, you would have them plead 
guilty or no contest to the crime, but you wouldn't sentence them. You'll give them something to do. You'd have them do a program. You have them do community service. And once the person completed that, then you would dismiss, uh, you, you wouldn't, you would dismiss the case. They withdraw their plea and you dismiss the case. So they wouldn't end up with any kind of criminal history. And that's been in place for many years for juveniles and adults. And it, it is a responsible way to handle, especially first-time offenders for low-level offenses. But what he was doing uh, or what he announced he was going to do is enhanced the diversion. And again, this is right out of the playbook of whatever think tank is spreading these ideas yep. all over the country. You can go to Philadelphia, you can go to Chicago, Baltimore, D.C. You'll see some form of enhanced diversion in every Pseudo intellectual garbage. And this was a diversion program for people, juveniles committing some serious crimes. He made it eligible for juveniles who were committing felonies with weapons, including crimes such as sexual battery and just things that were beyond diversion. These are young people who need more structure than what a diversion program uh, affords. And they need that. It's been repeated many times here. Our criminal law doesn't exist for the sole purpose of punishing people. We do a lot more to try to help people than punish people. Now, punishment is often uh, a legitimate, you know, feature of a sentence, mm -hmm. but it's not the only thing that we do. And it's not the thing that we enjoy doing the most. We really want to help people, especially young people. I mean, sure. punishment doesn't even factor into our juvenile system. It's not a punitive system at all. It's all about rehabilitation. And we as prosecutors are really committed to doing that. But you can't do that if you're excusing these young people, even for serious offenses, you're not helping them. Yep. You're giving them a kind of education that what you did is something that you can do and not be punished for. So what do they do? They do it over. They escalate. And then one day they turn 18 and they're looking at a serious sentence and no one can help them. Mm -hmm. uh, so mm -hmm. we don't want to use our juvenile system to, in a sense, raise our children to be hardened criminals or allow that antisocial behavior to develop and harden. And, and Sean, what were your experiences defending? I imagine that you de uh, defended, uh, 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 you know, youth criminals or, or those were accused of crime and, and the, your experiences in that system. Yeah. The juvenile system, you know, it honestly kind of reminded me if, if uh, adult court was high school, the juvenile system reminded me of middle school. You know, you mm -hmm. had DAs, you had judges there, first of all, who only deal, dealt with juveniles. And for the most part, they've been there forever. And these judges, to be honest with you, they care. They look at the person first, mom and dad, or whoever, if, if there's a mom and dad, caretaker, if there's one parent, they were always there. They spoke to mom and dad just as just as much or even more than they spoke to to the juvenile because they wanted to make sure that the juvenile had structure around him or her. And they wanted to make sure that if they were to release the juvenile, um, you know, even though they commit what was a serious allegation, um, that they would go to a structured environment. And, you know, it is it is like what John said. It was more of a how do we make sure that this this child doesn't come back when he's an adult. What what yeah. can we do to give this person a future? Um, but at the same time, I got to tell you, I represented some juveniles that, you know, they needed a little bit more than, uh, than just a slap on the wrist. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of these young men are a part of very, very serious gangs. Then they are committing crimes that takes the intellect of an adult. 
um, to commit. You know, this isn't a young kid running into a candy store and grabbing something and running out as fast as he could. These are elaborate crimes that, you know, require multiple steps in some cases. Um, You know, there's multiple elements, multiple charges and and other people involved. Um, And for the most part, especially in certain areas, you know, it's, it's for the benefit of a gang. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of those kids, unfortunately they stay in the system, but you know, that's just the, the product of, of being, you know, raised in an area where, where there is a lot of crime and the mm-hmm. more crime you let go, you know, the, the more crime happens. And, and particularly with gangs, once again, taking advantage of these vulnerabilities in the legal system in these, the removal of disincentives that Gascon has implemented because they're going to be encouraging the youth. They're going to try to recruit youth to go commit crimes on their behalf, on behalf of the gang. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. People who only moved to L.A. recently or who are young and don't remember the 80s and early 90s um, may may be unaware of how concentrated criminal activities are are amongst gangs and organized crime um and and maybe unfamiliar with the notion of a gang enhancement which i mean i I think we can get into and see you know to the extent that um gang enhancements and punishing certain gang and organized activity more harshly and targeting the the real you know the 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 most let's call it uh high volume criminal activity um led to it led to public safety and how George Gascon seems to have, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, removed gang enhancements or or, or uh, directed the office not to uh, charge gang enhancements, period. Um, John, if you could explain a little bit about that. Yes, again, that's exactly right. One of his directives is that we will no longer file gang enhancements for certain serious and violent felonies. Um, the gang enhancement law essentially allowed us to identify certain gangs that were committed by and between gang members or by anyone for the benefit of the gang. And the penalties that were added on to a crime ranged from three years up to 10 years. And then for indeterminate sentences like murder, premeditated attempted murder, it actually didn't add any time at all. It just uh, required a minimum for uh, certain crimes. So, uh, you know, it's inexplicable why in the gang, what's been described as the gang capital of the world, that being mm-hmm. LA County, the district attorney would decide that he would not use this very important tool to suppress gang-related violent crime especially when he talks a lot about equity and we know these crimes impact black and Hispanic neighborhoods more than any other. Correct. Um, And so, you know, in addition to that, he dismantled the gang suppression unit that has existed in the LA County DA's office since the eighties and Mm -hmm. and has been very successful. We talked at the beginning of the show about how we got from that 400 percent increase in crime since the 1960s back down to some semblance of normality Mm -hmm. that gang unit was the workhorse of the district attorney's office in prosecuting shootings and murders he dismantled it and 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 as a defense attorney i would i would and as a defense attorney i would hate to see the gang allegation when i would interview 
uh, potential, you know, defendants that wanted to retain me. And I didn't know what the complaint would look like, but I knew that that person was in a gang. I would always kind of hold my breath and just tell them, let's just hope you're charged with what you're charged with. And there's no gang allegation because that gang allegation could turn the entire case upside down. Even if they don't punish you on the gang, gang allegation and you just openly admit to being a, a part of that gang as, as a part of a plea deal, it was, it was a, it was a massive tool for the prosecution and it was something criminal defense attorneys hated because if the gang allegation was proven there's really no getting around you know getting around the this the severe potential punishment that your client would face not only in this crime but a crime he would possibly face in the future if he had if he had the admission of a gang allegation on a previous case and i would just also say that you know, when when the, the mayor took over in New York, and I know we're talking about L.A., but one of the first things he spoke about, just to stress the importance of how vital, vital, vital it is if you're serious about crime to go after gangs, one of the first things he said was, I'm going to go after gangs. That yeah. the majority of these crimes that we see are committed, that we think are one-offs, are not one-offs. Yeah. We think kids are committing crimes. They're not random kids. They're not running home to their own place with mom and dad. These are gangs and the vast majority of these, you know, of all crimes in, in terms of these metropolitan cities are are really controlled by and are for the benefit of a gang. Um, and it just goes to show that when someone, you know, like when a mayor takes over and that's the first thing he points to. And this is a guy that was also in law enforcement. Um, it's it's shocking that Gascon would say that. And essentially, he's sending a message to, to them it's just it's the same thing over and over again if you're not going to prosecute it you could tell your prosecutors hey be lenient you don't need to go out and make a blanket announcement yeah because what if what if an extremely heinous crime occurs and it's obvious that it was a part of you know a gang and it was in the furtherance of a gang i mean you've just kind of put yourself in a corner where you've made a promise that you're not going to do this and something happens but i think more important it's you know, flashing to police officers, I'm not going to back you up on this, telling the DAs, I'm not going to back, back you up on this, and then telling the gangs, I am going to back you up on this. Yeah. Yeah, this, this compounds because it removes the deterrent effect through every li- uh, link in the chain, right? The co- it, it the cops take the take the message. The gangs take the message, and that compounds. And that that's the types of things where he, a guy like Gascon will continue to deny the causal link between his policies and the end result. But he keeps on denying the end result. Period. He keeps on telling us we're safer when clearly we're not, and everyone can feel it around us. And part of that reason why is these universal directives, issuing these universal orders that don't allow. You know, don't allow prosecutorial discretion based on the circumstances of the situation. I think we're seeing that all over. Yeah, absolutely. 800 murders last year, 87 <sighs> percent black and Hispanic victims, Yeah, 82 percent with guns. And the DA won't prosecute gun crimes to the fullest extent of the law. Am I correct in saying, John, that he's essentially legalized guns in, in Los Angeles, that, that guns are essentially legalized because if you're caught carrying one, you won't be arrested? He does have a misdemeanor policy as it relates to guns that makes it less likely that somebody who gets caught carrying a gun will be prosecuted. Mm -hmm. Um, I wouldn't say that he's legalized guns, but by not prosecuting the gun allegations properly, uh, he has taken away the incentive that gang members especially had to not carry guns on them. 
stash the gun someplace in the community and mm-hmm. if something jumped off they would go get the gun but by got the time it. they got back whoever they were targeting was gone so a lot of times mm-hmm. a lot of violence didn't happen because the gun wasn't in the car got nowadays it. we're seeing record number of we have more shootings than we've seen since 2006 i believe mm. but and that's because the gang members are no longer afraid to walk around with the guns with in, in their pockets or in the car. So as soon as something jumps off, the guns come out. That's what's happening. Yeah, this all adds up. This compounds uh, another uh, another policy of his that seems to compound and have unintended consequences. And that also, at first glance, just seems insane and is insane. Not sending. Um, not sending any uh, rep- prosecutorial representative or representative of the DA's office to parole hearings for anyone, for all violent criminals, right? So uh, uh, just to, to frame this for people, like no matter who the criminal is, you know, could be a violent criminal who's been in jail for 25, 30 years, they'll have a parole hearing to determine if they are, you know, no longer a threat to society and can be let back out. I mean, the, the, the people of the state of California put that person in jail to begin with you know, in order to keep the community safe and have them pay their debt to society. But and historically, and, and as is common practice, the you know district attorney's office that represents the people sends a representative of the people to appear at the parole hearing to ensure that it's being handled properly, that any case made uh, to keep this person incarcerated is made. George Gascon does no, no longer thinks that's necessary. He does not send a representative to the parole hearing. And once again, this is not this is not for nonviolent drug offenders. This is for hardened, murderous criminals, including uh, Sirhan Sirhan, who murdered uh, uh, Robert F. Kennedy. Okay, that's why Robert F. Kennedy, uh, Sirhan Sirhan, finally got paroled after I think it was his sixth time up for parole. Oh, what a coincidence. The first time under George Gascon's reign, he gets paroled. Um, And so what happens here? You know who who can send a representative? The police department. So if the police department wants to do right by the people of California and send a cop to a parole board hearing to represent the people and and make the case for or uh, against parole, that cop's not on the street responding to to, to crime. Right. And so these are the types of things that have unintended consequences that have second and third order impacts and just uh, once again, add up to making everybody less safe. Um, so John if, or Sean, if you guys can kind of expand on that and to the extent that I may have uh, accurately described it or inaccurately described it, that is what it, what is occurring, essentially. I'll just I'll just say that, you know, I've had a lot of cops on the stands, whether it's in prelim or trials. And police officers, you know, they aren't the best advocates. They're not they're not district attorneys. So if you want, you know, someone fighting for uh, a victim, if you want, you know, someone, a real advocate, I mean, lawyers are, you know, we're trained, obviously, you know, this is what we went to school for. You know, this is why we're in court all the time. Um, And, you know, I I would if I were a victim of a crime, you know, I would feel that I'd want a lawyer there to represent me. I would feel that I want my voice to always be heard and to be heard in the loudest and most vigorous and most passionate form. And to me, that's what the district attorney's office represents, even though they've been an adversary to me in in, in terms of, of in the professional form, the district attorney's job to me in, in its purest sense is being a victim's advocate, whether that victim is a business, a business owner, whether that victim is a victim of a, of a 
you know, sex crime or violent crime or a, a mother or a, a wife or a husband, you know, every every crime has a victim. You know, every crime has a victim and that victim is voiceless um, if it's not for their if it's not for their representative. Yeah. And let me add that, um, you know, we represent the people, so we belong in the room. And we're not there to oppose parole in every case. There Mm -hmm. are a number of cases where we acknowledge this person is programmed well and this person deserves to be paroled. Yep. Uh, But as the representative uh, of the people, you know, we're there sometimes when the victims are not there. Mm -hmm. Maybe they couldn't be found or they had no interest in appearing. We used to always be there on behalf of the people, keeping a watchful eye making sure everything was considered um, and police officers just can't do that. We good? Seems to be a little bit of a drum beat there, but no, understood. And that, that is the, the key point being George Gascon does not find it necessary for the people to be represented at parole hearings for hardened criminals because right. he I, believes. I, Matt, yeah. let me address the, the issue of the police officers who attend these hearings instead. Because people mm-hmm. might think, well, you know, we have a good substitute. We have a backup. You don't have an adequate backup because police officers can't do the things that district attorneys can do at these hearings. They can't yep. ask questions of the inmate. Yep. So yep. If, if the potential police know the facts that's inaccurate, the police officer can't ask questions of that person. Mm-hmm. Uh, the police officers don't get the prison records. They don't get the risk assessment of uh, records they're just there mainly to give some kind of comfort to the victims but they can't really engage in the process and this is this is george gaston has a policy matt that requires his prosecutors to support parole in every case and in cases where the prison's risk assessment tool says that the person is a high risk to recidivate only in those cases can we remain silent? Unbelievable. (laughs) You know, I'm laughing because it's so ridiculous. If it wasn't so serious, it would be funny. I mean, can you imagine you have a risk assessment outcome that says this person is a high risk to recidivate and the DA, he requires his DAs. Well, we can't even be there, but he requires us in writing to remain neutral. We, we can't write. Listen to the everybody out there. I want you to acknowledge the insanity of that. The district attorney requires his, the, the prosecutors underneath him to advocate for parole in all cases, regardless of circumstance, except for the highest risk cases in which they're required to maintain silent, uh, uh, maintain silence. Does that sound like someone who has any who prioritizes the safety of innocent civilians whatsoever? Not at all. All he prioritizes are his quack science and theories and these pseudo intellectual think tank ideas that say that our system, that our society needs to be reformed and that simply punishing people who do bad things less will lead to a more just, safe and equitable society in the face of all reality. Um that has manifested itself in another very interesting situation and we'll get uh, uh we'll wrap up here in just a moment but another situation that that just stuck out was just so apparent um that you never see in and under any other district attorney's uh tenure was in response to the 
cold-blooded murder of a law uh, of law enforcement official officer Fernando Arroyo. Um, the uh, L.A. County Sheriff's Office has brought in federal prosecutors to prosecute the defendants because they do not trust George Gascon to properly prosecute. They, they believe that he will go so lenient on them that it that that they do not trust the case in Gascon's hands. Um, I've never seen this before. Um, there would be no reason for this in, in uh, under any other district attorney. I mean, um, are we right? Is this something we're going to be seeing more often? The federal prosecutors brought in because the the local district attorney is not trusted. Well, let, let me start by saying that was very demoralizing for all of us in our office, because that's our case. This is one of our law enforcement officers, even though he is off, was off duty at the time, he was murdered in our community and our lawyers should have been handling that prosecution. Yep. By going to the U.S. attorneys, the, the sheriff gave his ultimate vote of no confidence in the district attorney because George Gascon had said, I have a blanket policy against charging gang members with, with the mm-hmm. gang allegation and murders. I have a blanket policy to never charge the 1020 life gun law that's going to add time for using a gun in a murder. Mm-hmm. And for those reasons, the sheriff went to a prosecutor who's going to prosecute it to the fullest extent of federal law, which is different from state law. I don't think we're going to see a lot of these, though, Matt, because in order for the feds to prosecute a crime, they need a federal hook. Mm-hmm. It has to violate a federal law. And in this case, because the people who killed Officer Royals were gang members and involved in a gang in particular that the feds already have prosecuted for certain Uh federal RICO type crimes, they were able to charge this case under federal law. Uh, So for people out there who wonder why the feds didn't take other cases or will they take cases in the future, uh, the answer is they probably won't, you know, they don't really want to get involved in the political aspect of what's going on mm-hmm. in Los Angeles. Uh, we need a political solution to this problem. And, you know, I believe that that solution is we need a new DA. Yes, sir. And so, OK, let's get get to solutions. The political solution. What can we do to start turning this around um, to we, we seem to have a blueprint for how to do. Uh, bring down the crime rate, how to uh, uh, accept, acknowledge the realities of the city that we live in. We don't live in Norway. We can't have these cute little pie in the sky uh, criminal justice philosophies and policies because that's not the city that we live in. Yet, despite more uh, uh, more challenging circumstances, we have been able to create safe communities in a safe environment. So we know how to do it. What, what are the steps that we can start taking to get us back to that point in 2013 when we were celebrating Los Angeles being the the safest city of its size in America? Well, I think uh, the most immediate thing we can do is put more officers on the streets. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a strong uh, relationship between police staffing and crime prevention. So mm-hmm. the first order of business is to stop the crimes from happening in the first place. Um, while that's happening, we've got to elect a new DA. We need a new yes. leader. Uh of law enforcement in our counties, somebody who has a real fidelity to the law, somebody who's going to be faithful to the law uh, and prosecute crimes the way they should be prosecuted and to seek outcomes that are proportional and just. And Mm -hmm. I think even go a step further and and do what the DA can to 
engage in some kind of transformational justice where we're not just prosecuting people and going on to the next case, but really partnering with other um, department heads in the county, other members of law enforcement to try and get people the help that they need. Uh, finally, we need to look at some of these laws that we passed over the last 10 years. Prop 47, we need to go back and, and make some changes to Prop 47. In fact, I would say we need to repeal Prop 47 altogether, yep. but certainly make some changes. Prop 57 also did some uh, some very important things that's resulting in a lot of people being released mm-hmm. sooner than the judge said they should be released. It gave basically yep. prison authorities the power to shorten sentences. We have an elder parole law that um, allows people to be paroled after just 20 years in custody once they reach 50 years old, which is nuts. So we have, um, you know, a lot of changes that we can make to our law, but uh, I would say more law enforcement officers, that that requires more funding, not defunding. Yep. We want these officers properly trained. We want them to engage in constitutional policing and we want them to be respectful to the community. But we need them out there and the community wants them out there. Mm-hmm. I can tell you, uh, when I talk to people, I can't speak for the whole black community because they'll come after me if I if I try to do that. But but I can tell you that whenever I talk to African-Americans, they tell me they don't have a problem with police officers. In fact, they like to see a police car patrol in their neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. They just want it to be respectful policing. That's what we no need. doubt. Absolutely, and this this false this this false dichotomy between safe streets and and equitable streets and uh, and it it just the data and the polling does not back it up. You you go poll communities all around. Uh, America and, you know, inner city communities or uh, heavily minority communities all are in favor of more policing. It's a whole myth being driven by a an alienated activist class and their surrogates in the media. And it's just it's not a reflection of reality of how the people who have to deal with the consequences of crime actually feel regardless of skin color. Um, Sean, you know, my, a good friend of mine, uh, fellow Angelino, start to finish, born and raised. Um Going to John's point about a change in district attorney and the recall of George Gascon, you and I have begun to get involved. Maybe you could tell tell everybody out there a little bit about where that that um, that movement and that initiative is, and uh, and we can get get some people activated and getting get going in that direction because you know we're on the clock. Yeah, so you know there, the petition has been approved and it's live, and you could go uh, to the website and and that is the petition, either- the petition, the petition to re- uh, recall George Gascon as district attorney of Los Angeles. That's right, that's right, and you could go to that website and you can download the petition, mail it in. If you want to get other signatures, there's a instructional video of how to properly obtain um, other people's signatures or canvas essentially and mail those in as well. The clock is ticking. To be safe, we need about seven or eight hundred thousand signatures um, in a you know certain window of time. Um, we also need donations, so we could you know put people out there to to get more signatures. I think by now we're probably at around three million dollars raised, um, and you know we're hitting the ground running as, as as hard as we can, and we're trying to get the word you know spread out there and. You know, I was born here, like you said, um, you know, I was a criminal defense attorney practicing day in and day out, uh, countless cases uh, all over the state. 
state of California. I've probably visited every prison, every jail in California, including Catalina Island. <laughs> uh, and look, I've seen a lot of good. I've seen a lot of bad. Do we need justice reform? Absolutely. You know, where do I think that fits in? I think that fits in in rehabilitating people with the help of the court and with the help of district attorneys. Um, I think that's how you re rehabilitate people. I don't think you rehabilitate people by essentially making crime not crime. Declassifying crimes is yeah. not a way to rehabilitate people. Um, you know, with with all that being said, I've I've seen the worst of LA because I grew up here. I remember you know the riots, the original riots, um, yep. when when Big Five was ablaze on La Cienega, <laughs> and you know I've never had the feeling I have now. You know, yeah. um, ever. And I'm on the side of of pushing against police officers, pushing against district attorneys, fighting, you know, for the rights of criminal defendants. That's been my life's passion. I know that there is a lot of room to improve in criminal justice reform, but I know what is happening now it doesn't benefit anybody. It doesn't benefit the, the poor communities, it doesn't benefit the rich communities, and it doesn't benefit anybody in between. And what it's doing more than anything is it's driving a, a, a gap and a knife between law enforcement and the district attorney's office. And that is mm -hmm. a very, very, very dangerous thing to do. In my opinion, they work best when they work together, when they trust in each other. And you have you know great people like John and there's great DAs out there that, that know what's going on. But we ha essentially have an, an outsider that's come in. George Ascon isn't from here. He doesn't bleed Correct. the LA blue and, or purple and gold we bleed. If you're a Clippers fan, whatever colors those are, I'm not mention <laughs> them. Um, but you know, we have an outsider that came in with outsider money, and they're trying to change the fabric of our beautiful city. And it's not helping anyone. It's not helping our youth, and it's not helping the people that you know are in their you know latter days in life, and they just want to walk down the street with their grandkids and be safe. Uh, yep. Is in a safe environment, and I don't think this is what anybody signed up for. Yep. Very well said. So. Um Everybody out there, it, it, first week of February, the Gascon Recall Initiative is active. If you want to participate, if you uh, want to gather signatures, sign, um, contribute to socializing and publicizing this effort, um, or contribute to fundraising, please reach out to myself or Sean. You know, we'll tell you where to find us um, in just a moment. Um, John is in the the district attorney's office. I, I think he's made no secret of where uh you know of of, of where he lies on this situation. But I'll, I'll leave him out of the act. Uh, John, are you actively involved in the recall effort? Do you have to keep an arm's length? No, I'm I'm not a formal member of the recall committee. Uh, I certainly support it. Yeah. And anytime someone puts a microphone in front of me, I mention it. I talk about it. Um, I promote it. I think it's essential that this be effective because I just don't believe we can go till 2024 with George Gascon um, ruining our criminal justice system and our court system, usurping the power of judges, hurting our young people, frustrating our victims. We can't do this for another two and a half years. So yeah. I would encourage everyone to go to www.recalldagegeorgegascon.com, download a petition, Download a couple for your friends and family. Let's get them mailed back and let's have an election. Let's, yep. have, let's have Gaston, you know, come down off the 12th floor of the Hall of Justice and get proximate with the people and try to explain how these policies are keep are making us more safe. 
like he yeah. promised, you know, a year yeah. his, he needs to be held to account. And his poll numbers are are horrendous. Um, people are waking up. They realize that they may have not been paying attention in 2020 or were led astray by some of these policies and, and, and you know, and taglines that once again sound great, but do not work in practice. And I think we're all seeing that, un- unfortunately, sometimes with with real tragic results. Um, so once again, reach out to any of us on, on this initiative. Um, for me, it's Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y, primarily on Twitter or Instagram. Um, John and Sean, if you could each tell us where that people can find you on social media. I'm at John McKinney, J-O-H-N-M-C-K-I-N-N-E-Y underscore. Um, same handle both on Twitter and Instagram. And you could find me at M-E-T-T-A-E-S-Q. That's Meta E-S-Q with two T's on Instagram. And the petition for recall is on that page as well. And I'm doing my best to try to constantly update it. Um, this, well, I don't know when this is going to air, but this coming Saturday, um, there the petition will be in four locations, um, Beverly Hills, Antelope Valley, and I think two other locations in LA for people to go sign. That's on the page as well. Fantastic. A truly citywide effort all, all uh, you know, uh, from from the beach to downtown, South L.A. to the valley. Uh, this is something that hopefully will bring together all good people of goodwill from various neighborhoods. Um, everybody out there, I hope this gave, you know, educated you on on where we've been, where we came from and where we are in terms of uh, law enforcement, criminal justice and some unfortunately troubling, um, you know, contemporary issues around it that that for better, for worse, you know, no, no people can no longer ignore. It, it is now in everybody's face here in Los Angeles and other big cities in America. Um, but hopefully this took, you know, this this drove forward the, the process of educating people and informing them. Um, and hopefully we can take action to, to reverse course here and, you know, alleviate uh, the concerns of a lot of good people out there. So everybody, um, thank you so much. John, Sean, cannot thank you enough. Um, everybody, this is The Prevailing Narrative. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. The Prevailing Narrative is a Cavalry Audio production in association with iHeartRadio. Produced by Brandon Morgan, executive produced by Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger. For Cavalry Audio, I'm Matt Belinsky.